This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Alcazine Brief, we talk with Dr. Greg Van Wyck. Dr. Van Wyck is currently serving as Chief Executive Officer and Chief Medical Officer of Noxofarm, a clinical stage Australian drug development company with offices in Sydney, New York and Hong Kong. The company is developing a number of drug candidates, including Veonda. This drug is an advanced dosage formulation of a generic anti-cancer agent called Idronoxil, which is designed to specifically target cancer cells, rendering them less able to survive radiotherapy. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Youngest in Brief. Radiation seeks to kill cancer cells by damaging their DNA beyond any ability of the cancer cell to repair that damage. However, all cells have a well-developed mechanism to repair DNA damage. And if a cancer cell is successful in repairing that damage caused by radiation designed to kill it and survives, therapy is unsuccessful. Scientists have developed a number of drugs designed to block that repair mechanism. This means that more cancer cells can be killed following radiotherapy. Unfortunately, many of these agents have not yet been successful. One reason is that they do not discriminate between their repair mechanisms in cancer cells and repair mechanisms in healthy cells. And these drugs also increase the toxic side effects of radiotherapy, countering any benefit from their use. Hydronoxil is different because it only blocks repair mechanisms in cancer cells, and as a result, healthy cells remain unaffected. But in order to block the repair mechanism, hydronoxil needs to be present on a continuous basis. When it is not present, the repair process continues unabated. Researchers at Noxofarm have been able to develop a formulation of hydronoxil that keeps the agent in the body in an active form for long periods of time. The result is a continuous anti-cancer effect for as many days as the drug is administered. The drug has also been studied as an adjunct therapy to standard-of-care chemotherapy. The purpose of this approach is to increase the sensitivity of widely used chemotherapies while, at the same time, reducing the many well-documented damaging side effects. Earlier this year, data from the first series of preclinical studies confirmed that hydronoxil activates the cell associated with both the innate and the adaptive immune systems. The Oncuzine Brief is developed in collaboration with our online journal, Oncuzine, at www.oncuzine.com where you can find additional information and the latest news about cancer, cancer diagnosis and treatment, and cancer prevention. Let's listen to our interview with Greg van Wyck. Welcome, Dr. van Wyck, to the Oncocene Brief. Now, before we're going to talk about your company and about uh, the drugs that uh, your company is uh, developing... Tell me a little bit more about your background and how you ended up in a company developing anti-cancer drugs. Well, thanks very much for having me, Peter. It's really great to have the opportunity to talk to you and, and your listeners. And yes, originally from South Africa, went straight out of school into medical school and enjoyed it. But I identified quite early on that um, I wanted to potentially move into sort of different or non-traditional areas of medicine that potentially used other skills. So economics and business. And so I had identified quite quite quickly at the middle of that degree that I would like to 
do some some business courses. And during my internship, I, I started a Bachelor of Business Administration and found that I very much enjoyed that, particularly economics. I then finished my internship, finished a, a year of community service in a, in a big hospital in South Africa, and went on to work as a general practitioner and as an emergency physician for about three and a half years. And during that time, my now wife and I planned to, to move to Australia, and we did so in 2006. Working as an emergency registrar, I was lucky enough to get a job with Eli Lilly. And over the next 12 years, had a had a very enjoyable career with Eli Lilly, mainly in medical side of business, but I'd always been viewed as somebody who had a penchant for the commercial side of business, the understanding of strategy. I was lucky enough to move my way into into management. I managed the Australian New Zealand medical team for about three years, and then I was lucky enough to move to Northwestern Europe, based in the UK, managing what essentially was Northwestern Europe, about a hundred people. And for for us at uh, at Lilly at the time, all roads ultimately would lead to Indianapolis, and I made the decision that I'd like to come back to Australia, which I did at the beginning of 2018, and. I started studying and I started looking at potentially moving into consulting. But I had been in, in, in touch with various uh, recruitment agencies and uh, I had said, look, if an opportunity came up to work in a biotech or in a startup pharmaceutical company, that would be absolutely my number one sort of dream job. And that's quite a rare opportunity in Sydney. Uh, most of the startups in the health technology sphere in Australia are based in Melbourne and Brisbane. This opportunity came up and uh, it was too too good to refuse. Initially, it was the chief medical officer and at the time, the CEO said to me, look, if, if you come on board and, and we like what you're doing, I'm going to progressively uh, move into into more of an executive board role and I'd like you to take on the CEO role. And, and that all now has come to pass. It's been a lot of hard work, but a lot of fun. We've made huge progress in the time that I've been there. And how I came to be in oncology I've always been interested in, in medicine in, in all its aspects. And uh, most recently, I was working in um, across a range of products, but I was working a lot on immuno, uh, immunology. And I was very interested in, in immunology and also seemingly the yin and the yang of, of immunology these days is immunology in terms of autoimmune disease and then immunology in terms of, of oncology. The opportunity to to work in a in an oncology company, but especially to lead the overall clinical development plan of that from a from a perspective of understanding how pharmaceutical drug development is done, but also how we need to focus on how that delivers value to the end users uh, is is something that I really bring to the fore, and that's exactly what I've been doing since I've arrived at at Doxafarm. When you look at South Africa versus, uh, for example, uh, Australia or Europe. I think you are also in a very unique position to look at pharma, look at drug development and see some of the major differences in each of those areas. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Absolutely. It is very interesting. And I did a Master of Economics along the way and I've become very interested in particularly welfare economics and the role of welfare economics, be that equity versus efficiency of healthcare delivery in different economies. You see one approach in the United States, you see one approach in Europe, and then you see very different approaches in, in Africa and, and Asia. And what's clear is that nobody has cracked it. There's things to like about each of those economies. As far as drug development is concerned, the most important difference, I think, is how that product lands in the marketplace. 
and they are very, very different marketplaces. A lot of developed economies are very happy to support the research, but then struggle when it comes to actually paying for the technology. I think as we move into sort of rarer and rarer diseases with more and more sophisticated technologies, gene therapies, et cetera, which are now essentially going to be priced in the millions of dollars for each treatment, we're moving to a point where very, very few people are going to be able to afford these kinds of healthcare. And this is an issue that we've faced in countries like Africa for some time. It's almost as if Africa dropped out of the ability to afford medicines quite some time ago. And that, I think, is the really key difference. And, and one of the key strategic differences that I see emerging between, between companies, there are those companies who will focus very much on margin and high prices and, and happy to play in a low-volume environment. And then there are those companies that will focus on volume. I think we need both, obviously. We need the gene therapies that's at the cutting edge, and it's what ultimately will have spillovers over generations into newer technologies. But we absolutely need to do something about making medicines more affordable for the majority of people who cannot afford those very, very expensive medicines. And that's something I feel very passionate about, having come from a place like South Africa. You, you mentioned about the affordability of drugs. Uh, when you look here, for example, in the United States, there is really a big issue about disparities in, in healthcare. And some of those disparities have to do with the fact that uh, drugs may be too expensive. Yeah. In other situations, it may be to do with some gender-related disparities or racial mm -hmm. disparities. In each country, you've been working in South Africa, you've also been working in Australia. How are some of those groups being targeted or how looked at? Because I can only imagine that things will be uh, very different in, in, in Australia or South Africa. Absolutely. And I think often it's, there is politics involved. And, and so, for example, in Australia... Uh, people have a, a view of Australia as people out in the out in the sheep paddocks, uh, you know, speaking like Crocodile Dundee. The reality is that it's a it's an extremely developed country with over 70% of the population living in major cities. And the problem then becomes one of geography, where we have sufficient numbers of people living in rural and, and very remote areas who have very poor access to medicine. And uh, this is a big issue for the government. And then, unfortunately, an issue for the government that has not been addressed very well for, for a long period of time is, is what they refer to as the gap in Australia, where Aboriginal people live for about 25 years. Uh, their life expectancy is 25 years less than, than uh, non-Aboriginal people. And, and that clearly is something that, that needs to change. So that's, that's important in Australia. Let's take a break. After the break, we're back with Dr. Greg Van Wick. Dr. Van Wick is currently serving as Chief Executive Officer and Chief Medical Officer of Noxifarm, a clinical stage Australian drug development company with offices in Sydney, New York and Hong Kong. The company is developing a number of drug candidates, including Veonda, an advanced dosage formulation of a generic anti-cancer agent called Idronoxil, which is designed to specifically target cancer cells, rendering them less able to survive radiotherapy. Clinical trials allow researchers to introduce new hope by providing participants access to cutting-edge and potentially life-saving treatments. Speak with your doctor and visit standuptocancer.org slash clinical trials to learn more. Together, we can stand up for all of us. 
This is the Alcazine Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. If you're just joining us, today in the Ongesim Brief, we talk with Dr. Greg Van Wyk. Dr. Van Wyk is currently serving as Chief Executive Officer and Chief Medical Officer of Noxafarm, a clinical stage Australian drug development company with offices in Sydney, New York, and Hong Kong. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Ongesim Brief. What's been important in Australia, I, I lived through the HIV epidemic in, in South Africa at a time where the president didn't believe in the the concept of HIV or perhaps found it convenient not to do so. And fortunately in South Africa, as it has took place perhaps first in a country like Uganda, when the government acknowledged that HIV was, was real and, and started to do something about treating patients with highly active antiretroviral therapy, the rates of of infection have, have stabilized and, and if not started to decline. And I think this comes all the way back to the importance of making sure that we, we do foster innovation. And I think this is where the United States, where the rest of the world has the United States to thank, because whilst prices may be high for Americans, the reality is that the fact that the United States is prepared to pay for innovation, that the rest of the world benefits from that innovation once it becomes generic. And, and of course, then one innovation leads to another, that incremental innovation. And so highly active antiretroviral therapy was far too expensive when it first came into South Africa, but now we can treat people quite cost-effectively. So these are the sort of disparities that we see. And then, yes, uh, as you mentioned, in, in the United States, perhaps there is more of a postcode disparity that we see. And, then, and we also see in countries like the United Kingdom. Yeah, you, you see, for example, if you uh, live in the more rural states, uh, people may be able to afford the drug therapy, but simply not the ability to travel for two, three hundred miles to a clinic. When you look at uh, a company like Eli Lilly, the company you were working for for a long time, and you compare that right now to a company like Noxafarm, I mean, there is obviously a big difference in the kind of company, in a sense, one is a startup, one is an established, a long-term big pharma company. What are some of the key differences that you have observed and, and some of the things that you may have to learn in terms of or apply to your current company? One of the biggest commonalities I think we share is that we we genuinely are engaged in the business of trying to bring medicines to, to people to enable them to live longer and happier lives. So that's really what we're all focused on. And I, I've, I've been very happy in my, my career, both at that Eli Lini and he had to have observed that that is genuinely what we're focused on. In terms of the, the key differences, obviously Lily has access to just incredible resources, nearly 40,000 employees globally, significant talent internally, uh, as well as access to talent externally, a lot of different focus areas. It's a big machine, in essence. And in a company like Noxafarm, we're very small, we're very lean, we are able to move very quickly and we have very talented people internally, but most of us are talented in a, in a way where we are able to pull together a lot of diverse threads, pull together a lot of external talent to essentially run many projects and act as a liaison for the company out into, into an expert community. And that very much is our operating model. And it enables us to operate very quickly, 
On the flip side, it means that oftentimes the buck starts with you. So accountability is very much raised in that regard. And we have to adopt a mentality of uh, just going. Basically, we, we don't spend too much time on, on the back burner wondering. We get out, we talk to people, we propose things, we make mistakes, we learn from those mistakes. And it is, it is that approach that enables us to, to operate much more quickly. So at Noxifarm, I've been able to do a lot more uh, in six months than, than I would have done in the equivalent six months at, at Eli Lilly. Uh, and at the same time, we also have to focus uh, a lot on really thinking quite early on about how we're going to communicate about our technology. Big Pharma has the advantage of of having revenue streams from their medications that are that are on the market that take a little bit of the heat off them in terms of being able to talk about what their technologies may be able to deliver when they're quite early on in, in development. So they almost keep quiet about it and, until it really gets into phase two, three. Whereas most small pharma companies and biotechs have to talk about their technology early on. And that brings with it uh, exciting opportunities and it also brings with it some challenges, um, not least of which the fact that you know, we, we have to patent our medication quite, quite early so that we can begin to talk about it. And, and that is indeed what Noxifarm has done and what many of our counterparts in a similar position would do as well. That means that, I mean, it's, it's a leaner machine, as you indicate, with bigger risk. That's right. Lean machine, bigger risk and potentially bigger payoff as well. I think these days a lot of companies and big pharma companies are invested in for their dividend, whereas we'd be invested in for our growth potential. And so, yes, it's, it is quite a different value proposition that we bring. And so smart investors obviously have a, have a mix of both in their, uh, in their portfolio. Looking at your website and looking at some of the uh, interesting developments uh, that you, uh, products that you have in development, there are definitely a whole series of products that, that you're look, working on. That's right. Noxifarm has two components to it. We have Noxifarm and then a wholly owned subsidiary called Nirada. Noxifarm very much focuses on oncology drug development and Nirada looks at the non-oncology drug development. But coming back to the, the oncology piece and, and what, our, what our business is all about, our founder, uh, Dr. Graham Kelly, very interesting man, initially studied uh, at vet school and, and found his way into transplant medicine at the University of Sydney and then quite quickly found himself working on flavones and flavonoid technologies. Uh, these are plant-derived chemicals. Uh, initially, quite, people were quite interested in them for their estrogenic properties. But people have also spent a lot of time studying them for potentially their anti-cancer properties. And, and Graham Kelly was one of the sort of leading researchers in this field for quite some time. And he, he started our company. He had run a few companies before that uh, from the mid-90s. But he, he started our company with the vision that these isoflavones, you know, particularly hydronoxyl, being the active that is in Beyonder, these, these isoflavones have very interesting properties and people have consistently observed these properties uh, in, in vitro and in preclinical work, but no one's really hit the, hit the magic in terms of being able to get the, these substances to cancer cells in sufficiently active form to enable them to, to have the desired effect. And he spent a lot of time thinking about that and we have 
we've created a formulation of Edronoxyl that, that we think does that in Beyonder. And at the core of that, then, our technology platform, we feel, is, is about pharmaceutics and how do we get these isoflavones to, to the cells where they, they need to be active. And ultimately, I'm also very interested in the idea of these, there are many, I mean, there would be thousands of similar substances that have interesting properties, but companies have not managed to get them to, to where they need to go in an active form. And we feel that's a very interesting uh, area for us to focus in, in terms of our, our drug discovery efforts or our, our early phase drug development efforts going forward. You mentioned that some of them, uh, some of those products or some of the developments are based on plant-derived kind of substances. Is that the only area you're looking at, or are you also looking beyond that? So at the moment, we're very much focused on on Edronoxyl itself. That's Edronoxyl in, in, a, in a suppository formulation to enable it to bypass both the the gut metabolic effects. So the glucuronidation and uh, avoid those transferases, plus also avoid going through the liver and being metabolized by a first pass effect in the liver, which is a very common problem for a lot of pharmaceutical products. That very much is our focus. Uh, we think that we, uh, we're on to something there. And again, I, I look forward to talking about the role that that can play in enhancing chemotherapy effects, enhancing radiotherapy effects, and potentially how that will lead to benefits for, for patients with prostate cancer and, and, and other solid tumors such as sarcoma. But we are also interested in other derivations or, or other analogs, either third or fourth generation analogs of um, idronoxyl itself, uh, as well as some of the precursors to idronoxyl. So to come back to initially derived from, from plants, but idronoxyl is a synthetic um, isoflavone. So uh, we are now into the into the, into the business of of taking these isoflavones and and modifying them sequentially uh, to be more active and and more druggable and have, have the kind of effects on on cancers that we would like to see. And indeed, if you look at our Nirada business, this is something that they do very very well. So we to date have worked with them to benefit from from them in terms of some of the, the molecules that they've developed, but they very much take the, the backbone, I suppose, of, of some of these isoflavones and they look at look at putative targets and then they model these targets to really understand how do we need to change the chemistry and the structure of the molecule to be able to engage the target better. So yes, it has its origins in, in sort of plant-derived isoflavones, but it's become very sophisticated in terms of how we alter the chemistry. Let's take a short break here and then we talk some more with Dr. Greg Van Wick. Over the years, you've brought them into your home. You were prescribed opioids after the C-section and after dad's back injury. They helped when you were in pain and you held on to them just in case. But did you know holding on to unused opioids puts your family at risk? Trouble with opioids can start at home with unused medicines, such as pills, patches, and syrups. You can remove the risk and protect your family. Find out how at www.fda.gov slash drug disposal. This is the Alcazine Brief. 
with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. Welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Youngest in Brief. If you're just joining us, today in The Youngest in Brief, we talk with Dr. Greg Van Wyck. Dr. Van Wyck is currently serving as Chief Executive Officer and Chief Medical Officer of Noxifarm, a clinical stage Australian drug development company with offices in Sydney, New York, and Hong Kong. Now, one of the indications, or one of the indications you're working on very hard right now, is in advanced uh, prostate cancer. Now, prostate cancer is. happens often, but it's not necessarily something that everybody is being treated for, except in the advanced stages. And then the saying goes that um, men who die might die with prostate cancer than as a, and not necessarily as a result of prostate cancer. And so in many cases, if it's not necessarily to be treated, then that's not happening. But in your case, when we look at advanced prostate cancer and when we look at the treatment options that are there, that is a very special group of people where treatment is lacking. Tell me a little bit about that. Prostate cancer is a, a very interesting disease. It's got many different faces, um, both in terms of the different cancers that patients get at the beginning, how aggressive is their cancer, one might be very aggressive versus another person's, and also in the way that they evolve. So the, the dynamic sort of stages that a prostate cancer goes through is, is quite varied as well. And as you point out, many, many men will, will ultimately die with, with prostate cancer, but from, a, from another cause. It's actually only in the later stages of the disease where the, they are more likely to die from their prostate cancer than from other causes. Now, that being said, about one in 40 men uh, in the United States will, will die from prostate cancer. So even though it's and many men do not who get prostate cancer do not die from their prostate cancer. It is still a significant cause of death. And uh, in Australia last year, we estimate that we lost 3,500 men to prostate cancer. So it remains a big issue in large part because it is so common. And yes, treatments are still needed for these men with, with late-stage prostate cancer. So prostate cancer goes through some phases. First, it's localized in the prostate gland. That's where we really try and treat it definitively and have achieved great success, both in terms of advances in the way that the prostate gland might be removed or ways in which the prostate gland might be essentially taken away through high-dose radiation. However, if the prostate cancer spreads outside of the prostate gland, it's referred to as being metastatic. And even then, many men with metastatic disease can control their disease because it will respond to uh, anti-androgen therapy. So testosterone really drives the growth of prostate cancer and we can overcome the effects of testosterone through what we sometimes refer to as chemical castration. Many men, again, will take this therapy and their prostate cancer will be under control for, for a long period of time. There have been a lot of great new therapies uh, come to market where men can take oral sort of anti-androgens and, and control the disease quite nicely. Unfortunately, some men stop responding to that hormone therapy and then they have what we refer to as metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. And, and these men, unfortunately, do not do very well. Their median survival is about 13 months. There are a number of treatment options available for them. There are chemotherapy options. There are new options being 
studied, such as an intravenous uh, radiotherapy that uh, is bonded to to a substance, a peptide that that seeks out prostate cancer cells, and then the radiation is emitted very uh, in a very targeted way to to those cancer cells. These are some of the really exciting developments that are coming for these men. But but again, many men will not respond to that therapy as well, and so we are very excited about the prospects of bringing Beyond It to, to market for, for men with metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, these men who are really in stage. And initially, we focused our efforts on some of these men will have metastases in their bone. Uh, if you look at men who have this disease using nuclear medicine scans, it can be quite scary, actually. You see, you see these metastatic these tumor deposits throughout their body, particularly in their bone, and it can be very painful. So what happens for some of these men is they will be offered what, what's referred to as palliative radiation or low-dose radiation, and really the intent there is, is to shrink the tumor, alleviate the pain, improve their quality of life as they, for the last few months that, that they will be alive. It does not come with the intent of prolonging their life. Now, we are studying the addition of Vionda to that palette of radiation to explore whether we can actually prolong life through the addition of, of Vionda to that palette of radiation. And, and also, are we seeing more benefit in terms of quality of life and in terms of pain? And we have a study that's, that's going on right now and has reported some, some initial results, and, and we were very encouraged by those. We saw more patients having a response in terms of their uh, what their prostate-specific antigen, which is the blood test, uh, it's a very good surrogate marker of disease activity. We saw responses there in, in these in the small number of patients that is encouraging. We also are studying beyond in combination with that intravenous radiation that I referred to, and we will, within the next two months, see the very initial results of, of, of that study, and, and it's so far been well-tolerated. Uh, which is consistent with the study that we've done. We've had over 76 patients treated in the clinic now with Vionda, and it's been very well tolerated, few adverse events. And so we, we're really hoping to, to potentially bring it to market for these men with late-stage prostate cancer. Now, the goal, of course, for all pharmaceutical companies in, in oncology drug development is you, you start at, at sort of end-of-life care for patients who've run out of options, and then you progressively move your technology forward in the treatment continuum. And that is exactly what we plan to do with Vionda in due course, principally because it is really well tolerated. So we think we can treat these men who potentially are still going to live for some time with this agent because it is not particularly toxic. Now, how how does Vionda benefit these patients? Perhaps the most interesting thing that we We've seen in, in case reports, and, and we have seen some evidence of this in our clinical trials as well, is we apply this palliative radiation to one problematic lesion that the patient has. They have many in their body, but we apply the radiation to one. We look at what happens to that tumor, and then we look at what happens to other large tumors in their body. And what we're seeing with the combination of the onda is that not only does the lesion that's being irradiated shrink, which you would expect to happen because of the radiation. But lesions that have not been irradiated are shrinking, and this is what is referred to as the abscopal response. 
And in practical terms, it's very interesting. It's, it is sexy because it's something that previously was quite rare until the immuno-oncology agents like pembrolizumab and nivolumab came to market. So we're seeing this, this effect and that's quite exciting. For me, what matters most is this going to prolong people's lives and keep them healthier and happier for longer. And I think if you can give a medicine to a patient that helps to shrink tumors outside of the, the radiation, there's a very good possibility that you could well do that. But that, that makes it definitely uh, a very unique uh, drug or a treatment. Now, you talk about this as a, if I understand this correctly, as an, an chemotherapy or drug that enhances other drugs or radi- and it enhances radiotherapy. That is the, the mechanism of action that you just described? Yes, so there, there is that effect. This is the effect that, uh, as I mentioned, our founder and, and other collaborators and other researchers have, have been observing for, for some time, actually, that uh, especially chemotherapy patients who have stopped responding to carboplatin may be resensitized to their carboplatin by the addition of, of idronoxyl. And we, we have studies, for example, showing that if you give doxorubicin and idronoxyl together in vitro models and, and also in animal models, you see a, a synergistic effect. So the one plus one equals three sort of outcome that we see there. So we're very intrigued by that. And, and we have done some preliminary chemotherapy work with carboplatin in patients with solid tumors. And we, again, we're encouraged by the results that we saw there because we had this very late stage patient group with really intractable cancer and we saw some of those patients disease stabilize. So that is encouraging. We are moving forward with, with studies in sarcoma where we will combine doxorubicin with our product, the Onda, because of that effect that we just mentioned and, and that effect was actually seen in sarcoma models. And for this rare and and highly fatal group of cancers, if we can bring something to market that improves outcomes for patients, that will be very exciting and certainly will help link up to our vision of helping patients to live longer and, and happier lives. So so these effects have been known for, for some time and, and we, we really are exploring them and excited about them. But what, what we're also starting to, to see now in, in a number of studies, um, preclinical to be fair, we're starting to see an, an immune effect as well. And we think this might well explain the abscopal effect. Now, some of that tumor shrinkage may be due to the beyond that itself. But we we believe that what could be happening is that because beyond that has been shown to increase the activity of the innate immune system, so there are two parts to the immune system, the innate and the adaptive, and the innate is the, the sort of more primitive immune system that we see in uh, less developed life forms. And it's it's the immune system that kicks into gear straight away. And it, uh, it, it, it relies on, amongst other things, natural killer cells. And we've seen that beyond that increases the activity of natural killer cells. It does also increase the activity of some parts of the adaptive immune system, so CD4 cells, for example, and we think that this could be an important part of the mechanism by which idronoxyl is working, particularly we think it could be explaining some of those abscopal effects that we're seeing where having damaged the 
cells with with radiation, you're you're activating the immune system, and adrenoxyl is, is is helping to make sure that that happens, and then that immune system kicks into gear and and um, targets the cancer cells uh, in other lesions. Let's take a short break. After the break, we're back with our interview with Dr. Greg Van Wick. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Yonkishim Brief. Did you know that generic drugs are just as safe and effective as brand name drugs? Generics might look different, but they work the same way. And they can even save you money. Don't believe me? Ask your doctor or pharmacist. Or visit fda.gov slash generic drugs. This is the Yonkazine Brief with Peter Hoffman and Sonia Portillo. And welcome back. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is the Yonkazin Brief. Our interview today with Dr. Greg Van Wick was recorded in Phoenix, Arizona, in April 2019. So this is this is a hypothesis at the moment to potentially explain some of the, the clinical effects that we have seen, and we have a number of, of studies underway preclinically to really inform that, with the goal of ultimately doing a study of Idrinoxyl or Vionda in combination with one of the commercially available checkpoints inhibitors. So these have been the real revolution in cancer care over the last five years where starting with epilimumab and then rapidly moving to Keytruda or pembrolizumab and nivolumab or Opdivo. We've seen patients with disease such as melanoma that was almost invariably fatal. Now up to 25% of those patients are able to live for, for years following remission induced by these treatments. So we, we would like to move in that direction as well. But uh, we have some preclinical work to complete this year before we know which one would make sense for us to combine beyond the with. Now, one of the mechanisms of action of, of the drug that you are actually in development beyond is that it actually blocks DNA repair. Now, that is important in case a cancer cell is being attacked. And, and of course, that's um, that the cancer or this cancer cell can't repair itself um, and do more damage. Tell me a little bit more about that. Yes, idronoxyl has, has a number of effects uh, inside the cell that, that play a role in, in apoptosis or, or cell death, programmed cell death, and also uh, prevention of pro-survival signaling as well. And one of those is DNA repair, so it blocks DNA repair. So once you damage a cell with radiotherapy, for example, and this is why we're quite interested in radiotherapy as well, is that if you're able to block DNA repair, then then the cell is unable to repair that initial damage caused by by the radiotherapy. So it's quite remarkable how resilient the body is and, and how resilient cells are, that they can be damaged by DNA they're then able to to repair the damage that's occurred. Now, we don't want that to happen when we're treating cancer, of course. And so by combining Vionda with, with radiotherapy, our goal is to prevent the cell's ability to repair that DNA damage caused by the radiotherapy. And to be fair, it could also be caused by chemotherapy and, and others. Um, by preventing that repair, the cell actually then dies. And so that is where we hypothesize we may be augmenting the effect of, of radiotherapy. 
There's a lot of uh, exciting developments uh, that we've uh, just talked about in a little under an hour right now. This year, your company is going to or meeting a lot of milestones, a lot of milestones uh, that are ahead of you. You're going to present a number of very interesting studies uh, in a number of uh, meetings, nuclear uh, society meetings, uh, nuclear medicine meetings, annual oncology meetings. Tell, tell me a little bit about some of the things that you are hope that you hope to present. Yes, so that, that meeting you referred to, the Society of Nuclear and Medical Imaging, is coming up in June. And it, we have a, an investigator at uh, St. Vincent's Hospital here in Sydney, Professor Louise Amos, who approached us based on the fact that she had read about Idronoxyl's radio enhancement uh, or putative radio enhancement. And she asked if we could support a study that, that she wanted to run. And she has initially enrolled 16 men with uh, metastatic cardioresistant prostate cancer to give them this intravenous form of, of radiotherapy. That was then expanded to another uh, 16 patients uh, at our middle dose of, of Vionda. This presentation will be about those first 16 patients, and we're very excited to, to see the outcomes of, of, of those first 16 patients, looking at patients quite early on in, in their treatment course to see, for example, what's happening to their prostate-specific antigen and to see are they, are they responding um, relative to what we've seen with this treatment in, in other studies, does it appear as if we're responding better and so uh, with the addition of Beyond. And so that's, that's coming up and, and we're excited about that because this is a very big technology. Novartis bought the company that makes this technology last year for $2.1 billion. So we think it's exciting both from a commercial perspective, but also because it's proving so far to be quite effective in, in, in these late stage cancer uh, setting. We also have the, the study where we combine external beam radiation in the palliative setting, um, that study will, will have progressive readouts through the course of this year. One will be coming up as, as soon as next month. And again, we're, we're excited about that because that will really inform our phase two study uh, where we really look to go into a, a larger a proof of concept type study, probably starting next year. So that's a very important readout. And we uh, as mentioned, are, are, are looking to um, begin the, the sarcoma study uh, later in this year. So yes, it's a it's a very big year for us. We uh, it's it's going to be a year in which we get the kind of data that that we want to see that enables us to then progress on into into phase two testing and and hopefully achieve our vision of of you know bringing Vionda to market initially for men with prostate cancer and sarcoma and then possibly beyond. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Peter. Noxofarm's Veonda works in tandem with both chemotherapy and radiotherapy. The drug is designed to increase the number of cancer cells killed by those treatments. But the drug goes a step further when it acts as an immuno-oncology drug by switching on the body's first-line immune defense mechanism. This is the main mechanism responsible for fighting cancer. What distinguishes Noxofarm's investigational drug is that it works with, not against the drug's defense system. Chemotherapy and radiation therapy are destructive treatments. Although they are designed to kill cancer, they can also damage healthy cells. And unfortunately, they can also damage the defense mechanism that the body relies on to fight cancer. 
The end result with standard chemotherapy and radiation therapy is a restricted anti-cancer effect because those treatments may also have disabled the body's defense mechanisms. The aim of Noxopharm's treatment is that it ensures that the immune system is switched on and primed to kill any cancer cell that survives the chemotherapy and radiation therapy. This early defense system is known as the innate immune system and is very effective at detecting and eradicating abnormal cells such as cancer cells. Noxopharm's Veonda is considered to be a first-in-class activator of this innate immune system. This is the system that scientists increasingly are beginning to see must be activated if a cancer is to have any chance of being permanently eradicated. For more information, visit Noxopharm's website at noxopharm.com. If you have any questions about cancer and how it is treated, as well as diagnosis and prevention of cancer, please visit the website of the American Cancer Society at www.cancer.org. For more information about clinical trials and drug development and how new anti-cancer agents are being developed, visit the website of the American Society of Clinical Oncology at www.asco.org. Here you can find more doctor-approved information. For us here at the Oncogene Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio, in addition to PRX, Public Radio Exchange, and in the United Kingdom and mainland Europe via UK Health Radio. And you can also download our program via iTunes. In Arizona, you can listen to the Oncogene Brief via Independent Talk 1100 KFNX, one of the top 10 radio stations in Arizona, reaching almost 5 million people throughout the state. For more information about that, check out our online journal Oncozine at www.oncozine.com. To help make this program possible, please visit our website and look for The Oncozine Brief. Here you can find more information about the way you can help support our program. And your support for this program is important. It allows us to bring you interviews with experts involved in the development of novel diagnostics and new treatments. If you're living in the United States and want to receive our newsletter, text the word CANCER to 66866. And we will make sure that you'll receive our newsletter, which includes an overview of the latest news in oncology and hematology. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. And join us again for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland, and this is The Oncus in Brief. The Oncozine Brief is produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wint, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660 or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health If you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it.